Well, church family, before we take time some, to dig into God's word, uh, I want to celebrate a win with you uh, from our children's ministry. Um, up on the screen, you're going to see some pictures of a ministry taking place in Belize that our kids are a part of. What is going on in Belize is they have a ministry called Crosspoint in which they take these mahogany desks to enable kids to go to school. In Belize, unless you provide a desk, you can't go to school. And these cost about 50 bucks each. And so our children's ministry has been raising money this past year in order to help these kids have desks so they can go to school. What you see in the building right there is Light of the Valley Baptist Church. This is a, a partner church of ours. There is a church there and a school there where they preach the gospel. And our missionaries, Todd and Shirley Stone, work to disciple these kids and these families. And so throughout this past year, our, our kids upstairs have raised enough money to buy 20 of these desks. And I am just so proud of them. And so can we just celebrate the Lord? I love it. What's really cool about this is it's not only are they providing desks so these kids can go to school, but this ministry is using teenage boys who are looking for work. They're teaching them a trade, giving them a skill, and then also providing an income for their families. And so I'm just really proud of Rick Callahan and his leadership, and I'm thankful for all who serve in our kids' world as we're seeking to make a difference for the sake of Christ all around the world. Uh, if you're here this morning and this is your first time gathering with us, inside your worship guide is a, is a connect card. If you wouldn't mind, just fill that out. And at the close of the service, we're going to have a basket that we're going to take up for our offering. You can just drop it in there. It's a way for us just to connect with you. Thank you for gathering with us this morning. You know, one of the great rebuttals against unbelievers is life change. Because you can't disprove someone's life being changed. Jonathan had been kicked out of two universities for bad grades. He drank a lot, he partied hard, and he lived for two things, sin and self. A friend who was a Christian loved him, shared the gospel with him, and by God's grace, Jonathan gave his life to Christ. As a new believer, he still had marks of pride and of immaturity, but he was hungry for the word. God was pruning him. God was maturing him. Today, Jonathan loves Jesus. He loves his wife and his children well. He is now a Bible teacher at a Bible college. He's pursuing a PhD. He has a sound theological mind, and he's trying to reach people in South Minneapolis with the gospel as a church planter. A couple of weeks ago, I got a chance to sit down in a coffee house and have some coffee with my friend. And it was amazing to me. I just relished the conversation as I thought back over the past 15 years of who he used to be. And here he is now, a new creation in Christ. He's tenderhearted. He has joy beaming out of his eyes. He has a heart for the lost. He loves the word of God. My friend is maturing. Well, what's happening in Jonathan's life is what is happening in the hearts of God's children as we grow up into our salvation. 
You see, God calls upon us as his children to mature. And the way that we mature, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, is through casting and through craving. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going through a sermon series through the book of 1 Peter together as a church entitled Imperishable. We've walked through almost 10 weeks to get us through chapter 1, okay? There was just so much to unpack in that first chapter, this opening chapter of this letter in which Simon Peter is writing to believers who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. They're being persecuted for their faith in Christ, And so he's challenging them, he's encouraging them to stand firm in the faith, hold fast to Christ, persevere in the midst of suffering. Last week, we we spent some time unpacking this idea that we have been purified when we obeyed the truth. That quite literally, our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. We have been transformed by the good news of Christ and through his shed blood so that we might love our brothers with an authentic love. And we're able to do this because we have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed through the word of God. So in light of us being purified through the gospel, in light of us now enabled and equipped to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been forever changed by the word of God. What does maturity look like? Well, Simon Peter addresses that exact issue in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Peter writes, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, Peter is calling upon these believers to maturity. It's time to grow up, verse 2, into your salvation. Now, notice in the text two steps believers take towards spiritual maturity. The first step is this, is we are to cast off selfishness. Peter begins with the phrase, rid yourselves. It means to put off, to to lay aside. It's like taking off a set of clothes. When I was in high school and college, I had a job washing dishes at a restaurant in Lexington. And after my 12-hour shift, I would just be covered in barbecue sauce and grease and soda and soap. And it was just, I was a mess. And I would stink. It was just a horrible smell that I had to me while I worked that job. When I got home, I couldn't wait to get these clothes off of me. Well, just as you and I take clothes off of us, as we get rid of these things, as we don't want anything to do with them anymore, Simon Peter's saying in the same way, it's time to rid yourselves, it's time to cast off these sins of selfishness. Yet before we view verse 1 as a behavior modification list, we must contrast these sins with the holiness of God. You see, God alone is righteous and just in all of his ways. He is holy, he is pure, and he is without sin. And yet the Lord calls us, his his children, to imitate him, to become like him. We are to chapter 1, verse 16 in 1 Peter, we are to be holy as he is holy. And yet by his grace, 
He empowers and he works in us by the Spirit to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus for the grace in order to reflect his character. And you and I, we get to do this every day for the rest of our lives. See, before we dig into verse 1, this is important. This casting off of sins, this is not a one and done action. We are to rid ourselves of these sins continually on a daily basis, repenting and turning from our sins. You see, one of the key marks that distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever is that believers are continually repenting. We continually turn away from sin. We don't want to sin. We still do. We're still in the flesh. The heart is still in rebellion against the Lord by when we walk according to the flesh, but we don't want to anymore. There's been a transformation that's taken place, and we're now turning from our sin and trusting in Christ. And so as we look at these, these five marks of selfishness, these are areas in which you and I are like, no, 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 I don't want to go that way. I want to go the way of Christ. And so here Simon Peter is challenging these believers who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. You are to throw these things off like an old set of clothes. So notice here in the text five marks of selfishness that we are to cast off. Number one is this. We are we're to cast off hatred. Verse one, he uses the phrase all malice. The phrase all malice is a reference to ill will towards someone. Malice is this wicked desire within our hearts to hurt someone. You see, anger is the kindling that produces the inferno of malice. So what makes you angry? A better question might be, who makes you angry? Is it your boss? Your spouse? Your kids? Maybe if you're finding your heart trending towards anger you're not diligently watching the heart this is a heart issue your anger will control you and it eventually it will produce malice this is why James says to be slow to anger for anger does not bring about the righteousness of God this morning if you're harboring bitterness if you're harboring anger in your heart towards someone, if you see your heart trending towards malice, it's time to cast it off like dirty clothes. Number two, we are to cast off manipulation. Verse one, he uses the phrase all deceit. That phrase all deceit, it literally refers to bait on a fish hook. It's deceiving. What looks like one thing is actually another. You see, being deceitful is when you conspire against someone or you are manipulating people or situations to get your own way. We see this in Matthew 26 where the chief priests and the elders, they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Jesus' enemies were deceptive in orchestrating his death on the cross. Hear me today. God knows what it's like to have someone manipulate against him. Jesus himself was manipulated against by his enemies. If you have ever been deceived, if anyone has ever tried to manipulate you, hear me this morning, the Lord knows. He knows. 
He knows what it's like to be on the receiving end of manipulation, and he knows exactly what you are going through as you experience this type of manipulation. What about you? Do you manipulate people or situations to get your own way? Does selfishness reveal itself in the way that you try to conspire to make things work easier and better for you and for your life? If that's the case, this morning, be careful. That's a mark of evil. And we don't want to be those who deceive. We don't want to be those who conspire against the Lord or his people. And so this morning, if you have hurt people through manipulation or through deception. I'm going to challenge you this morning to go to those people and to reconcile. Humble yourself. Go to them and say, I, I was wrong. Please forgive me. And if, 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 if you've taken money, then you make restitution. You make up for what you did wrong. This is what it looks like for gospel unity. We're, we're willing to come back and say, man, I was wrong, and I'm going to make up for it because that's what God's done for me in Christ. I wronged him, and he graciously brought me in and restored me, and now I want to do that in all of my relationships. So moving moving forward, may it not be said of of you or I that we lie or that we manipulate for personal gain. That's not the way of Jesus. But number three, we're also to cast off, verse one, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy quite literally means playing the stage. Like an actor who puts on a face to portray someone else. Hypocrites act one way with one group of people and then completely different with a different group. It's a masquerade. You see, hypocrisy is being two-faced. So here's my question. Are you the same on Sunday as you are Monday through Saturday? You see, God's call for us is not only is to humility, but it's to consistency, is that we're not putting on a front, we're not trying to act a certain way in front of a certain group, we're not trying to perform. In fact, I hope that when we gather regularly, that this is a place where you can take the mask off, right? You can say, you have no idea how messed up I am, but I have Jesus. You see, hypocrisy must never be an accusation that someone leverages against us as believers, May we never be duplicitous. May we never be those who have two types of living that we don't change our language or our lifestyle based upon the people who are around us. Because you gotta remember, you can, feel, you can fool most people, you can't fool the Lord. He sees right through the mask. He sees right to the bottom of your heart, the motivations for why you and I do what we do. He sees our hearts. So for us moving forward, maturity means that you're growing in humility, you're growing in consistency, you're not changing who you are based upon the crowd that you're around. Now here's the deal. You and I are not perfect yet. You see, the danger of hypocrisy is that eventually it could be leveraged against us because perfect consistency is not found within us yet. We're not perfect yet. But 1 John 3, 2, there's coming a day in which we're going to see him and we're going to be like him. 
There's coming a day in which hypocrisy will go away. You and I will be perfect, complete, and mature in Christ. That day is coming at the resurrection. But until that day, we are to be casting off any hint of hypocrisy. The fourth mark of selfishness we must cast off is a cast off jealousy. Verse 1, he uses the word envy. Not only does that communicate someone who's jealous of what other, people's have, other people have, but it also carries the idea of an embittered mind that delights when others suffer. So let me ask you a question. Do you get angry when other people get recognized when you don't? Do you resent it when someone else gets the promotion? Do you hold a grudge against someone who gets preferential treatment? Do you get annoyed when people celebrate someone other than you? Do you get bitter when someone else gets something new that you can't afford? You see, the key to fighting jealousy is finding your contentment in Christ. And that contentment in Christ, y'all, it not only liberates you from jealousy, it provides you with joy. This is what God wants to give you. He wants to give you something far better than any type of jealous, covetous heart that we may have. So this morning, cast off any jealousy within your heart. Fifthly, we are to cast off, verse 1, slander. He uses the phrase, all slander. These are words that tear others down. It's it's backbiting. It's using your words to defame someone's character. The King James calls it evil speakings. Peter's calling his believers to rid themselves of words that destroy other believers. Why? Because disunity does not lead to an authentic brotherly love. It robs God of glory when you speak down against other people, particularly believers. Proverbs 16, 28 says, a a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. You see, the words of slander and gossip can destroy people, destroy marriages, destroy families, destroy churches, and destroy communities. We must be careful with our words. Currently in our kitchen, we have a sign up of Ephesians 4, 29. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to the hearer. So the question is this, do you have a sharp tongue? Do you speak evil against other people? Well, here's the good test. Go to friends and family and just ask them this question. Do I speak negatively about other people? And then humbly listen to their response. You see, a mark of mature believers is that we are repenting, we are turning away from slander. Now let me give, put some flesh on this. Let's be a little bit more practical. I want to land this home right into all of our hearts. Let me give you real quick three marks of selfishness. They're not in your notes, but they'll be on the screen. I want you to see these. First is this. One mark of selfishness is you lust for more. You see, the selfish heart says to itself, if I could only have more, if I could only have more sex, 
If I could only have more money, if I could only have more influence, if I could only have more power, if I could only have more stuff, it is a continual lust for more. You see, when you have a heart like that, your thirst for more is never quenched. You see, the heart that lusts for more is focused on the self. Contentment is only found in Christ. Well, second mark of selfishness is you complain. And here's what that looks like. When things are not going the way that you want, you gripe. Your frustration rises when things are not done exactly how you want them to be done. You are quick to blame others, including God, when things don't go the way that you want them to go. When your plans or preferences or expectations are not met, you complain. These are all marks of selfishness. Thirdly, you're impatient. Wi-Fi is slow. Traffic is backed up. The kid spills their drink for the hundredth time. How do you respond? You see, selfishness reveals itself in a million ways in each of our hearts and lives. None of us are exempt from this. And you see, here's what I've discovered. Selfish people are unhappy people. Never content. Never satisfied. Why? Because happiness is not found in stuff. Happiness is not found in your spouse. Happiness is not found in your kids. Happiness is found ultimately through a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus. That's where you find it. And we live in a world, we live in a culture that is looking for happiness anywhere other than the Lord. And they will never find it. Contentment is found in Jesus. So you and I must be like gardeners who are constantly fighting back the weeds. We are keeping a close watch on selfishness popping up in the garden of our hearts. So step one towards maturity, we're to cast off selfishness. Now if you're like me, your toes are hurting right now, okay? Like this is, this is painful, But this is what the word does. The word cuts. The word, it divides. It prunes areas in my heart, in your heart, that don't reflect Jesus. In fact, Jesus says in John 15 that if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And Jesus, the vine dresser, is going to cut off whatever does not bear fruit. Why? So that fruit, fruit can come forth. And so you and I have things in our hearts and lives that don't reflect the nature and character of Jesus. And it is God's mission to make us just like him. And so as we study his word, we see him here, even through verse 1, as we are casting off all of these marks of selfishness, God is pruning our hearts, cutting off things within us that do not reflect Jesus. But just like discipleship and repentance, it's not only a turning away from something, it's turning to someone. Okay, we see here in the text, not only to cast off selfishness, but step two, we are to crave the word. We are to crave the word. Look at verse two. Peter says, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up 
into your salvation. If you have tasted that the Lord is good. That word desire, verse 2, it means to crave. It means to long for. It's an intense passion, like an insatiable desire. This is a command that Peter is giving here in the original language. He's commanding us to crave. Just as newborn infants desire milk, so are we to desire the pure milk of the word. Now, parents, you are very familiar with the two contrasting sounds that a baby makes when they're hungry. Crying and eating, okay? So the cry is loud, it is ear-piercing, and it is stress-inducing, You're very familiar that when the baby is crying in such a level, it has a decibel that ruins your ears, and they're telling you, I want something, and I want it now. And yet you contrast that with the sound they make when they're eating. There is a a quietness, but there is a devouring of the milk. They long for that milk. They're almost out of breath as they devour the milk that's being provided. They're like swimmers who go underwater and they come up for air only to go back down for more. You know that sound that they make. And so here Peter is saying, just as babies crave that pure milk, we are to crave the pure milk of the word of God. And when you desire the word and you feed on the word, watch what happens. Verse 2, you grow up into your salvation. Don't miss this. Spiritual maturity begins with a holy hunger for the word of God. You see, there's a direct relationship between spiritual maturity and Bible intake. I said this last week. There are no shortcuts. This is your way forward. If you want to grow, you've got to do the hard work of digging into God's word. This is your way forward. There's other things that are good. This is what is best. You see, we, when we devour the word, when we crave the word, we become like that man in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, nor stand in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears much fruit in its season, his, in which its leaf never withers, and all that he does, he prospers. There is a craving, there is a meditating, there is a devouring of the word. So Kenneth, I'm ready to grow. I'm ready to go deeper in my walk with God. How do I do that? Here it is, plain and simple. Read your Bible. You meditate on it day and night. You memorize all that it contains and you hide God's word in your heart so that you might not sin against him. You put God's word up on the walls of your home to help you memorize and to know it. You talk about the word. When you gather with your small group, when you gather with your impact group, when you gather as a family, when you're talking to your kids, hanging out with coworkers, hanging out with friends and neighbors, you just talk about the word. It becomes so much hidden in your heart that it overflows and it just becomes kind of part of your conversation. Now, you don't do it in a very preachy way where you're, you're raising your voice and, you know, all, no, no, it's just conversational, talking about the word. Let me tell you what God's planting within my heart. 
And what's amazing is, is, is the more you devour the word, your appetite changes. You no longer want anything else for spiritual nourishment. You long for the meat of the word of God to satisfy your craving. I love how Warren Wearsby said this. He said it like this. It is sad when Christians have no appetite for God's word, but must be fed religious entertainment instead. As we grow, we discover that the word is milk for babes, but also strong meat for the mature. And as we feast upon God's word, we, verse 3, we taste and see that the Lord is good. Here, Peter is quoting from the Psalms about how the Lord, when you taste and see, you know that he is good. You see, here, he's paralleling the Lord in the Psalms with Jesus himself. And what's amazing here is that you get more Jesus through more of his word. So, Kenneth, what do I do when I don't desire it? How, how do I respond when I just don't crave the word? Let me give you three quick things. Number one, keep obeying. You keep obeying. You be persistent in your obedience. When you don't want to read the word, read the word. Don't wait until you feel like it. You keep reading and reading and reading. Don't miss this. Feelings follow obedience. You must lead your heart. That's true not only in Bible reading, that's true in life, is you must tell your heart where to go. You lead your heart on how to feel. Well, Dad, I don't feel like getting up and going to school today. Guess what? I don't care. I'm leading you in obedience so that eventually your heart is going to follow. The same is with the word. Kenneth, I'm just not hungry for the word. Well, stay in the word. You keep obeying. You keep listening. You keep reading. And eventually, watch what happens. The desire will come back. The second mark, a second way you can desire the word is to go hungry. You see, fasting from food is a means in growing in your hunger for God. When your stomach hurts from hunger pains, that is a great reminder of how you and I are to hunger for the word of God. It's amazing how God uses fasting as a way to bring us back to spiritual maturity and clarity. So if you're not in a season in which you're just not hungry for the word, let me encourage you to fast. Take a break from food, and when, instead of eating the food during that time, you open the word. But as your stomach reminds you, hey, I'm hungry, you immediately think, man, I'd be so hungry for the word of God. Thirdly, be patient. You see, healthy things grow, but they go through seasons. There will be seasons in which you just don't desire the word, and that's okay. But you remain faithful and you keep reading and you keep plowing and you keep studying. You go through this season of pruning and it's a normal part of maturity and you keep persisting in his word until the desire returns. You see, I was reading this morning in Ephesians 5 that Jesus is preparing for himself a bride, the church. And he is preparing us in such a way that he is making us holy. He is washing us with his word. Why? So that he might present her 
to himself, holy and blameless. Paul says in Colossians 1 that he wants to present the believers mature in Christ. And if there's anything I've been praying for the Lord for our church is that when the day comes, when I stand before the Lord and give an account for my life and for my ministry, I can present you mature in Christ. I can say, here they are, Lord. They're they're more like Jesus. They're more humble, more faithful, more word-driven, unashamed of the gospel, ready to give an answer for the hope that they have. But y'all, here's the deal. Maturity takes time. Immaturity is painful. But what happens is over time, as you grow more in love with Jesus, as you devour and crave his word, you eventually look back over a period of years and you see maturity. You can sit across the table from someone and look back and say, wow, God, look what you have done. But the way maturity comes is through casting and it's through craving.